I want you to open up your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6 this morning is what we'll be reading. As you're finding the, um, the passage there, of course, I think all of you are aware that this week, the Olympics began. How many of you guys in here began watching some of the Olympic events? Hey, a few of you in here. All right, just, some que- just a question. What's your favorite Olympic event to watch? Gymnastics. I hope you weren't watching that French gymnast. I don't know if anybody saw that, but a guy broke his leg. It wasn't pretty. Um, gymnastics. What else? Track. Okay. Soccer. Amen. We have a sanctified person in the house. All right. What else? In the back there. What do you like watching in the Olympics? Swimming. Yes, swimming. I was waiting for that one to come out. Swimming. Okay. You know, we have the opportunity with this year's Olympics to witness, to, to watch the person that, that many people today call the greatest Olympian who's ever lived. Of course, who is that? Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps has been in four Olympics. He's won 11 golds, 22 total medals. Now, statistically, though, he's not the greatest Olympian who ever lived. There was another guy, uh, I can't remember his uh, first name, his last name was Erie, and he actually competed in the first four Olympics of the 1900s, and he won every event he competed in. He won 10 gold medals over the span of four Olympics. So, statistically, he's the greatest Olympian who's ever lived because he's never lost anything. But, uh, generally speaking, people look at Michael Phelps in the day and age we live in with the athleticism of all the different uh, athletes out there and consider him the greatest Olympian who's ever lived. Now, the Olympics are a time in which people like to talk about greatness. Great athletic feats, great stories, great spectacles. But the Olympics measure man's definition of greatness. And though many of the athletes will go down in history as great men and women, God has another book, another measure by which he determines greatness. And in that book are written names, written before the foundation of the world, names of men and women of whom the world is not worthy. Truly great people who never appeared on a Wheaties box, who never became famous, who are great nonetheless. In today's text, the disciples come to Jesus and they want to be great, but the greatness they desire is the same greatness that the sportscasters will be talking about over the next couple of weeks. A greatness that receives applause, appreciation, and accolades from the world. A greatness that seeks to be on the top of the podium. So Jesus, like he often does, takes the wisdom of the world and turns it on its head. As he talks about true greatness, he's going to obliterate what we think of when we think of the word greatness. So please stand now, if you would, as we read Matthew 18 verses 1 through 6. This passage of scripture that we're looking at today is a continuation of our sermon series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, where we are walking chronologically through the life of Christ using all four gospels. Therefore, it's a harmony of the gospels. This is Matthew's version of this account. I'll refer in a little bit to the other two versions of the synoptics, uh, the other two synoptic versions of this account as well. But Matthew 18 is where we're going to be today. Verse 1, the word of the Lord says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn 
and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to the text this morning. We stand as we're reading it because we acknowledge this is your word. This is inerrant, infallible word to us. You have not remained silent. You have spoken clearly. But as we too often know, we have stopped up ears and cloudy eyes. The things you say so clearly we often miss, just as the disciples missed it. And so, God, I pray now that you would give us ears to hear, that your Holy Spirit would open up our ears to hear, that you would renew our hearts through your word, and that you would grant me a mouth to speak the word accurately. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So the disciples here, as we've been progressing through the the life of Christ, they're, they're at a point where they're trying and failing to piece together what the kingdom of God really is and what it means to be part of it. Now, one day they will fully get it, but now in the chronology of Jesus' earthly ministry, they yet again, in today's text, show how little they really understand. But let's not be too judgmental, for we too would have fallen just as short had we been there. Let us be sympathetic. These disciples, they have seen, they've seen Jesus do stunning things and say stunning things. They have seen him calm and even walk on the sea. They have seen his power to heal. They have seen his authority over demons. They have seen him feed multitudes out of nothing twice. They've heard his authoritative word. And some of them saw his transfiguration and heard the Father's voice from heaven. Yet, confusingly, they have also heard him speak of of an upcoming betrayal and talk of being killed and rising again. He's talked about that twice now. And then in last week's message, last week's text, in chapter 17, verses 22 through 27, they hear Jesus boldly proclaim authority over the temple by declaring that he himself is the son of the ruler of the temple, the son of God. And then he even said that the disciples themselves are adopted sons of God. So these, these disciples are still... Having heard that, they're, they're hoping for some sort of powerful political kingdom, but not sure what to make of all these comments about dying and rising. They're probably a little emboldened now that Jesus has, has demonstrated this authority over the temple, and they're a little bit emboldened, so they begin to think about their own position. You know, where do I fit in the king's, king's castle here? And so we read in verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, the other two synoptic gospels shed even more light on the disciples' attitude when this question is posed. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33, and in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, they tell us that that actually an argument had arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So they began to argue. And and, and it tells us that Jesus, already knowing what they were talking about, but in order to draw it out of them, he he asked them, "What, what, what were you guys discussing? And so you can imagine that when you look at those accounts and you look at today's accounts, that there was some sort of an uncomfortable silence and finally someone poses the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? 
So the parallel passages help us see that this isn't just some general question about the, the greatness about greatness within God's kingdom. It's a selfish question about their own greatness, about their own status, about their own position in God's kingdom. And just from reading the New Testament, we, we can tell that in the Jewish culture of the first century, there was an obsession with position and status. People judged the level of your importance by where you sat at a meal or where you sat at a wedding or by where you sat at the synagogue. Now, while many today might not be measuring greatness by the seating arrangements in our churches, our culture is likewise obsessed with greatness. Every year, our nation spends, just the United States of America spends $549 million on self-help books. Books meant to help us become greater at something, whatever it might be, a greater entrepreneur, a greater businessman or woman, a greater thinker, a greater teacher, a greater athlete, even books on how to be a greater church planter or a greater preacher or to have a church that experiences greater growth. Beyond the books, our culture is saturated with self-help gurus and websites and seminars. Human nature always wants steps methods, systems that promise us greatness. We want seven habits to make us highly effective. We want formulas to move us from good to great. We want a process to win friends and influence people. So here the disciples, after arguing about their own greatness, they approach Jesus about settling the matter. And so Jesus is about to give them his lesson on greatness. He doesn't write a book. He doesn't take the disciples on a field trip. Hey, let's, let's go over to the Roman headquarters. Let's, let's just see what, what they do there. And let's, let's, let's see what greatness is all about. Instead, in verse 2 we read, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. He gives them a very simple and very clear illustration of what true greatness is. And he turns the concept of greatness on its head for them and for us. So I see three things in today's text about true greatness. First of all, uh, true greatness comes from people who have transformed hearts. Truly great people have transformed hearts. Verse 3. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This word turn here, in the Greek, the word means to become something different. The NIV translates it as change, which may be a better better word than turn. And almost all the other translations, including the King James, use the word converted. Unless you are converted and become like little children, you will never see the kingdom, never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the word here is related to repentance. One translation even translated, unless you turn from your sins and become as little children. So it's quite clear here, the idea that Jesus has is one of radical heart transformation. The disciples want to be great as do all fallen human beings. And Jesus says, unless you turn, unless you are converted, unless you are transformed, unless you are changed, unless you are made new, you won't be great. You can't be great, at least not in God's economy. The nature of that change is made even more evident in the next verb, turn and 
become, unless you become like little children. This word become means to be born. It means to be brought into existence. In other words, this transformation is not a type of transformation that we can do with mere human effort or strength or wisdom. It must be brought into being. It must be, we must be born into this new mindset. I think that's why many translators, most translators, for all the, most of the different translations that are out there, instead of using the verb turn, use the verb convert. Because it seems here that Jesus is hinting at spiritual rebirth. That especially seems like the case when you consider how similar this statement of Jesus sounds to another statement he made. What does Matthew 18.3 sound like to you? Let me, let me read it again. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that sound like to you? Have you heard that before, something very similar to that? John 3. John 3, verse 3. And this is Jesus speaking to a man who by all human standards was powerful and great, a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus answered him in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Very similar statements. And we know in John 3 that Jesus is speaking about regeneration brought about by the sovereign freedom of God's Holy Spirit. So I think similarly here, his words are pointing to a radical work of the Spirit in the heart that transforms people into something brand new. Now, you may be saying, well, aren't the disciples converted by now? Why would he be telling them, unless you are converted or turned? Well, I think the radical work, the transforming work that the Holy Spirit does is both instant and progressive. We are both saved according to the Scriptures and being saved according to the Scriptures. And the disciples do not yet have the indwelling presence of the Spirit that they will receive at Pentecost. And so I think it's only at Pentecost that they are truly changed and become the type of men, the type of greatness that Jesus is speaking about in this passage. All fallen men need a radical, spirit-wrought work of rebirth in order to be saved. But even after that, all regenerate men and women continue to experience the lifelong effect that that rebirth has in them. Uh, The effect of progressively being sanctified, progressively being changed, progressively being turned from selfish, narcissistic, glory-grabbing seekers of human greatness to something radically, radically different. Jesus' words are a command to us. Unless you turn and become like children. Therefore, we must understand that we, even as born-again believers, must obediently and willfully participate in our sanctification. True believers put forth grace-enabled, faith-fueled effort because of the Holy Spirit's transformative presence in them. So when the, the lure of human greatness tempts us, when it, when it tries to creep into our lives or into our workplace or into our church, we remember that we need to turn and become something different. We put into practice Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So first, truly great people have transformed hearts. But secondly, truly great people have humble minds. Truly great people have transformed hearts and have humble minds. Verse 2, and he called to them a child. Now this word means a small child. He put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, why does Jesus use a child as an object lesson of greatness? I think many people believe that Jesus is highlighting the fact that children are are vulnerable or simple, they're trusting, they're dependent, they're innocent. Those things may be basically true, although any parent here will dispute the innocent part. I don't think those aspects of being a human child are the main focus here. From the very text itself, we see the main focus isn't innocence or vulnerability or any of those things, but instead the focus is on humility. Humility. Now you may be saying, what? My children aren't very humble either. Now, I understand that. But the point here is that a child was a person in that society, in that day and age, that had absolutely no importance and no standing. A child had no standing in Jewish or in Greco-Roman society. Children had no voice, no power. They were not to be taken seriously except for the responsibility to, to raise them. And they were definitely not to be looked, upon, looked up to. They were the lowest rung in society. Literally, in society, the, low, the bottom three rungs were women, slaves, and then children. So this example isn't about innocence, it's about status, the humility of becoming a nobody. That's what we're called to. True greatness are people who are willing to become nobodies. Unlike American culture where children are viewed as having an equal voice with parents or often rule the home and are scarcely disciplined and are all rewarded with a trophy lest their poor self-esteem be bruised, in the first century Galilee, children were nothing. And that's the point. Unless you turn from your fleshly desire for human glory and become like this child, nothing. Unless you humble yourself and take on the role of a nobody, not only will you not be great, Jesus says you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. The disciples come asking about greatness, and now Jesus is talking about entrance into the kingdom. And he's saying that the road into the kingdom is a road that no fallen man or woman in their fallen nature truly desires to go down. Namely, the road of nothingness, the road of humility, the road of not being recognized, and yes, even the road of being despised by the world, the road of suffering. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to them, do you not remember what I told you way back early on in my ministry to you? Do you not remember what I said in that sermon that was specifically for kingdom citizens, that was for my disciples? Do you not remember Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That type of humility begins with a recognition that before God, we are nothing. So like David in Psalm 8-4, we say, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? 
That type of humility continues with a recognition that before a holy God, we are sinners who are spiritually bankrupt. So like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 5, we say, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That type of humility then continues with a recognition that we have been shown undeserved mercy and undeserved grace. So like Abraham in Genesis 32.10, we say, I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. That type of humility comes to completion with a recognition that in light of what has been done for us and what is being done in us, we will gladly lay aside our rights to serve others so we can be like the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians, verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, who, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And he goes on to say they even begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's the humility that Jesus is looking for. Jesus takes a child and says that that's who we have to be. In the world's eyes, insignificant. In the world's eyes, weak. In the world's eyes, despised. But in God's eyes, true greatness. This is exactly what Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. I think we all in here probably know the story of Eric Little, the man who the movie um, Chariots of Fire is based upon. In the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris, Little refused to run the final heat for the 100 meters, an event that he was totally expected to win. He would not do it because the race was on the Lord's Day. He refused to do his work on the Lord's Day. Instead, he later competed in the 400 meters, which he won. Little was strong in his convictions, but he was also very humble. And in his humility, his humility, I should say, was based on the fact that he understood there was something much more important for which he was living. There was a much more important race. He said this, It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. Little, Little's understanding of his true race towards true greatness would take him in 1925 to China, not for the Olympics, but to serve as a missionary. So I worded this point here, our second point, that truly great people have humble minds because humility has less to do with your social economic status or your bank account or your job title than it does with your heart and with your mind. Right after that famous Romans 12, 2 passage about being transformed by the renewal of your minds that we read earlier in, in Romans 12, we have this in Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So humility manifests itself in the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about, our, uh, about others. And Jesus is our model. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Listen to this, verse 5. Have this mind, thinking, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in Matthew 20, verse 25, a text we'll get to eventually, Jesus called his disciples to him and says this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. True greatness. So in verse 4, Jesus says, Whoever humbles himself like this child, this lowest of the low, this bottom rung in the kingdom of man, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we see thus far in Jesus' short seminar on greatness that truly great people have transformed hearts, truly great people have humble minds, and finally, truly great people have open hands. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now Jesus shifts here from the need for a transformed heart and a humble mind to the actions that mark a person who has a transformed heart and a humble mind. Whoever receives one such child. Now, it's hard for us to tell for sure whether Jesus is is speaking about just children in general again, biologically speaking, children, or if he's now referring to his disciples as children. Certainly, I think we should receive and treat children in general in a very, very loving way. But this, I don't think this is primarily a children's ministry text. But rather, I believe that from this point forward in this text, Jesus is now calling his disciples small children. The key for me is found in the words, one such, which is referring back to the person who turns and becomes like a child, who humbles himself as a child. So it is now those people, those people who, those humble disciples that Jesus is now calling children. So I believe that now he's talking about how the disciples are to treat one another. Another reason that I think that he's now referring to humble disciples and how they treat one another and not literal children is that the overarching theme of the rest of this chapter is relationships within the kingdom. Relationships within the kingdom. Specifically, Jesus will deal with how we are hard to handle sin within the brotherhood. Okay, so you look at the next verse. Whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believes in me to sin. And then later we have Jesus talking us, teaching us how to confront a brother who sins against us. And after that we have Jesus teaching us on how to forgive a brother who sins against us. So I think Jesus from verse 5 forward when he talks about how we treat children is referring to how we treat others in the church. So with that in mind, verse 5 says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus shifts here from commanding us to be humble like children to teaching us how to receive and minister to those who are of low status like children. In other words, we must not only be willing to be nobodies, we must be willing to minister to nobodies. The ones who are powerless. The ones who can't give back. The ones who can't reward us. Jesus gives two parables in Luke 14 that connect being humble by not seeking places of worldly honor with being humble by serving those who cannot show us honor. Luke 14, verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 14 of that passage. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited 
when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited to, so, to buy someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so we see from today's text, we are to show honor and we are to show our humility in the way we treat those who are lowly. And when we do that, we are actually showing honor to Christ. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is the principle behind what Jesus says later in Matthew 25. In that text, Jesus is speaking of the day of judgment that's to come. And he says this in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least, one of the littles, one of the lowly, as you did to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. We are to put others' needs above our own. And in doing so, we serve them and we serve Christ. Jesus, again, is our model, John 13 when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do this just as I have done to you. This means not only that we, we look out for the hurting in the church, but that we seek to serve them and that we kill the sin of partiality. We should always be on the lookout for those who are in need in the body to serve them. Not to get attention, but to serve them in the way Christ served them. And it's not just limited to those who are here in our body. We serve our community. We serve this lady Ada down the road who from what Barbara tells us is a believer. But she's a believer who is bound to a little home on the side of Harbin's Road. She needs people who are willing to go and minister to the lowly. And that includes me and you. James 2, 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, saying, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, oh, you, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? And then in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. May God's spirit work in and through us. May he make us Romans 12 people People who outdo one another in showing honor, who contribute to the needs of the saints, who rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, who live in harmony with one another, who, who are not haughty but associate with the lowly, who are never wise in their own sight, and who are always, always giving thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. True greatness puts the needs of others above our own. You've probably never heard of this next Olympian. His name was Lawrence Lemieux. Well, I'll just ask. Anybody know who Lawrence Lemieux is? You don't know him because he didn't achieve the type of Olympic greatness that makes the headlines. In 1988, during the Seoul Korea Olympics, he was, he, was, he was a sailor. He was in the sailing competition, and his boat was running well, and he was clearly going to medal. But when, amid some very dangerous winds, he noticed a competitor's boat capsized, he disqualified himself, he abandoned the race to help save these two injured sailors. In handing the competitors off to the rescue crew, he then resumed the race and came in 21st. Truly great people put their pride aside for the sake of others. And that only happens through transformed hearts, humble minds, and open hands. Hands that serve others with our time and with our treasure. But the way we treat others in the kingdom not only involves what we do, but also what we do not do. Verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. Now, this verse serves as an introduction and a transition to the next section, which we'll preach on next week. And this verse also, by the way, if you've gone through membership class, you know this. This is one of the most influential verses in the history of Harbin's. Because when we started Harbin's, our name was uh, Milestone. And we had a reason for Milestone because we were trying to encourage parents to, to teach their children the great milestones of God's sovereign work in their lives. So we had this great name we thought was catchy and cool called Milestone, but everyone in the community thought we were Millstone. This was not what we were trying to communicate with our name, okay? Casting children into the sea with big stones, I mean, kissing people into the sea with big stones around their neck, okay? That's, that wasn't it. So part of the reason we changed our name was because, well, everyone thought of this verse when they thought about our church, Now, as I said, this verse will introduce us into what we're going to talk about next week. But it also just shows us something else that ties into what we talk about next week. We have to take care, and what we talked about last week, I should say, we have to take care not to cause little ones in the kingdom to stumble. Verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. That verb, to sin, is exactly the same verb from last week, chapter 17, verse 27, translated there as give offense. However, not to give offense to them. It's the word skandalizo. If you remember me talking about it last week, it literally means to cause another person to stumble. So this ties into what we've already talked about last week in regards to how we use our Christian freedom. Remember, our freedom isn't for us, but for the edification of others. Therefore, we take care not to allow our freedom to cause others to stumble. One of the most vilified names in the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles was that of Zola Budd. I was watching this event live when I was a kid. I remember this like it was yesterday. She was a British long-distance runner, and she was on the third-to-last lap of the 3,000-meter race. 
And the favored runner who was expected by everyone to win the gold was a lady named Mary Decker. And she was beginning to make her move, and she was coming in on the inside. She had the inside lane. And this lady named um, uh, Zola Bud steps out into that lane, makes a big stride to the left. And at that moment, she causes Mary Decker to tumble and to be eliminated from the race. The crowd began to boo her. She was booed out of the stadium. Now, technically, she didn't break any rules, they say. But the video replay seemed to indicate that she intentionally tripped the other runner. She scandalized the other runner. That was a scandal of that Olympics. Let there be no scandals in the church where we cause our brother to stumble because we think we're out in front. We have so much Christian freedom because we're such a wise and enlightened believer. Let us be careful not to scandalize our brothers, causing them to fall into sin. And just as the receiving of a brother in need is receiving Christ himself, so too we learn from 1 Corinthians 8 that your freedom of conscience causes, if it causes your brother's conscience to be violated and defiled, we read in 1 Corinthians 8 too, it says that in doing so you are sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin also against Christ. When you cause a brother to stumble, you're not just sinning against the brother, but against Christ. Which brings us back to the whole theology of the body of Christ. And what happens to the body of Christ is what happens to Christ. When you serve your brother in need, you serve Christ. When you ignore your brother in need, you ignore Christ. When you sin against your brother in need and causing him to stumble, you sin against Christ. In case you think that causing a brother to stumble is no big deal, Jesus has some very strong words. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned into the depth of the sea. Jesus paints quite a frightful picture. If you have to choose between facing God on the day of judgment after having caused his children to stumble or being dragged to the bottom of the sea with a stone around your neck, choose the latter. Now, in the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to flesh that out a little bit. He's going to talk about relationships within the, within the kingdom of God, between the children of God, between citizens of the kingdom. He'll deal with temptations to sin. He'll teach us about how to confront a fellow disciple who sins against us. And he will teach us about how to forgive fellow disciples who sin against us. But for now, let us remember these next couple of weeks as we watch TV and marvel at great feats of athleticism, as we're caught up in great moments of drama, as we watch some who expected to do great things fail, let us remember that man's definition of greatness is always tainted by sin. It's upside down. And we need Jesus' teaching on greatness to put us right side up. Transformed hearts, humble minds, open hands. If you're here this morning and you are trying to climb that ladder of human glory, or maybe you've already been burned, what you thought was the next rung of the ladder gave out and you've fallen down. Oh, friend, let me beg you to stop going after your own glory and turn. Turn from sin, turn from self, turn to Jesus Christ, the greatest man who ever lived. Yet he died the most humiliating death a man ever died. He did it to take the sins of his people on his own shoulders. He did it to stand in their place. He did it to give them new life. He did it so that all who would turn from their sin, put their faith in him, all who would confess him as Lord, and all who would believe in their heart that God did indeed raise him from the dead, all those who would do those things would be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Olympics. It's a lot of fun. 
to watch athletes compete, to watch how far in our own, through the common grace that you've given us, how far we can push the human body, what the human body can do, how fast it can run, how fast it can swim, how high it can jump. It's a lot of fun. But help us to see you in it. Help us to see your common grace. And help us to see that those things aren't ultimate. They're fun. They're not ultimate. There will be many, perhaps most of the Olympians at the Olympics this year, who accomplish great feats. But in, in your economy are not great people. Because they're basing their greatness and their worth on what they do out there on those fields, on those courts, in those running lanes. So God, help us to think about true greatness this week. And help us to look at our own race, the race that we've been called to run, the lane that we're running in. Strengthen our weak knees. Put our joints back into place if we've fallen and and failed. And, And God, help us to run the race with perseverance. And running that race with perseverance means putting aside our desires, our needs, for the sake of others. Treating others as more more highly than ourselves. So Lord, help us to be humble people with transformed hearts that result in people who have wide open hands. Our home, our money, our time, our talents, our abilities, it all belongs to you and to your kingdom. Let us use it to come alongside our brother or our sister who's hurting Let us use it for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of the kingdom. We ask for you to do this in us, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.